Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachi Kiddushin, daf mem vav, page 46. We have a new Mishnah here um, in the middle of Amad Aleph where I'm going to start there. So some uh, man says to a woman, be betrothed to me with this date. Date meaning Tamar, the fruit of the palm branch, right? Not a going out date. And says, be betrothed me with that one. Meaning, let's say you've got a whole bunch of dates there, right? You're saying specifically that one. And why does this matter? Part of the question is, how much is that is that date worth? The date has to be worth a pruta to be able to bring about the betrothal, right? Is one date worth a pruta? Probably, really, it is. But if there's if there's not enough if there's no value if one date itself meaning let's say the whole cluster is worth a proof uh, of course but each one is not but he's already specified in that one then that would not be uh, a betrothal. Bazo ovazo ovazo. Now what if he said be betrothed to me with this one and with this one and with this one meaning that date and that date and that date. If all of them come together. And their joint value is, in fact, a pruta or equivalent to a pruta. Um, then mekudeshet. Then they are betrothed. Ve'imlav ena mekudeshet. If not, not. Ha'ita ochelat rishona rishona ena mekudeshet. Ad shehe ba'chat mehen shava pruta. Now, what happens in this last case, where the last phrasing of the mission is a little bit amusing, I think, right? If he gives her dates, and the whole point is that he's going to betroth her. But then she eats them, right? He gives her a date and she eats it. And he gives her a date and she eats it. And she doesn't yet have the betrothal context. Um, I think we can all understand the, the sitcom humor here, right? And so then she's not going to be betrothed unless one of them is worth a shavapruta. Uh, uh, one of them is worth a pruta. And he has to actually say, right? Like, I'm giving it to you to be betrothed to me with it, Right. Um, if he has the intent and he's eating and she's eating them as she goes, then it's and this is another factor. It's also not clear what the value of it is, right? If it's just the one and the one is not worth a pruta, then even if everybody knows that the context here is in fact betrothal, it doesn't work. Like the fact that she's ingested it doesn't make them betrothed. It still has to be worth a pruta. I think that point becomes clear. So the Gemara comes to ask on this Mishnah, who is the Tana who taught that if he says, be betrothed to me, be betrothed to me, meaning that he says it twice in this way, right? That is connected to each date being a distinct act of betrothal, meaning as opposed to the cluster, or would he have to specify the cluster, for example? Amar Rabbah, Rabbi Shimon, he, so... Rabbah names the Tana of this Mishnah as Rabbi Shimon. Because Rabbi Shimon is the one who said in a different context, right? Really about taking oaths and specifically in, in oaths of deposit, right? Somebody makes a deposit and now you have to attest to whether this actually happened, right? So we say, Rabbi Shimon says he is never liable to bring more than one offering, whatever, unless he says explicitly the oath with each one each one along the way. So the fact that it's kind of this piecemeal, one by one by one, tells Rabbah that this Mishnah is in accord with Rabbi Shimon. Now, the Mishnah said, as we'll recall, bazo, 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 this one and this one and this one, 
We saw that case. So the Gemara wants to know, Ahaya, meaning the Gemara says, which of these, right? Which of the, which of the, when the Mishnah says on this, um, that this is the, um, I'm sorry. Let me start, let me rephrase. Ahaya, right? When it says explicitly that right, she's eating these dates one by one by one, She's only going to be betrothed if they're worth a pruta. And now the question is, well, which phrase or clause of the Mishnah does it mean when she's saying she's eating them one by one? Is that bazo, bazo, bazo? Or is that something else? If we say that we go back to the very beginning of the of the Mishnah, my iria ochelet. If we're talking about the beginning of the Mishnah, where he says, take this and be betrothed to me, like where do you get the idea even that it would so have to articulate the fact that she ate them. Eating doesn't seem to be part of the first half of the Mishnah. And, it's, and then secondly, right, even if she put them down, let's say she doesn't eat them, right, it would be the same thing. They still have to come together to equal a pruta, right? But so rather, the Gemara says, let's say that it's the end. What's the end case? Meaning that he's betrothing her with all of the dates or the dates as they come to together to be the value of a pruta. And then if she ate them one by one, it's still only going to work. If the betrothal is only going to work, if one all by itself was worth a pruta. So the question here of like cumulative value versus individual value becomes particularly relevant in the case where she ate them, as opposed to if she puts them on the side and then you could talk about the cumulative value coming before, you know, coming together for her. And then the Gemara asks, and then with this, I think you're Dan, I'll turn it over to you. The Gemara says, well, what about the first date? What if that very first date that he gives her is worth a pruta? Meaning then aren't they betrothed from the beginning? So then the Gemara says, no, because in that case, really the first date is like a loan, right? And what if he would take it back? What if he takes back the idea of being betrothed before he gives her the other dates, meaning she could return them? Right, and if it's a loan, then it doesn't work for betrothal. It has to be something that she truly accepts. So, so the problem is right as he gives her the dates one by one. He's she's eaten them as she goes, right? And now they're stuck, right? Like the dates can no longer function for the betrothal because she's eaten them. So Rabbi Yochanan says, "You have a table. You have meat." You have a knife, but there's nothing to eat. Meaning, and this is a really like an interesting conundrum in this particular Mishnah, where his his you know very vivid description here basically says the Mishnah is very clear, but we can't explain it, right? Like it seems to have all these very clear component parts, and certainly it feels that way when you read through it as a Mishnah. And then you come to the Gemara and you try to like parse exactly what's happening when. And it's a big, um, I guess the word would be tangle, like a big plunter. It's hard to unravel each of the threads. And if Rabbi Yochanan agrees with that, then I think I feel confident or comfortable to acknowledge that same difficulty. So, of course, Rav and Shmuel are going to come and, you know, try to figure it out as they go. And Rav, Rabbi Ami has a different explanation and Rav has a different explanation. But I'm going to stop here. I, I think it's so that we've seen yet a Mishnah we're like, basically, the Gemara says, we can't really explain this. This Mishnah doesn't really make sense to us. Right. It's First of all, it's the humility of the Gemara. 
But also, you know, the mission is supposed to be so clear that the only reason you would need to clarify it is because we, you know, generations later might have lost sight of it. But the Amorayim should know. Right. And they don't. So it's, I, I think it's a really interesting Mishnah. Um, okay. I will move on to later on. And they say the following here. This is on Amud Bet Itmar. So now they have this weird case of a man who betrothes his sister by giving her money. So Rav says the money uh, needs to go back. Uh, and and Shmuel says, no, this is actually just a gift. So they're going to explain the reasoning, right? Because Rav says, everyone knows that you can't have Kedushin between uh, someone and his sister. So it's clear he didn't really give it to her for Kedushin. And therefore, he obviously gave it to her as like a deposit and she would need to return. Right? So then why wouldn't he just say that it was a deposit, right? Why did he pretend to do it as Kedushin? He thought maybe she wouldn't um, she wouldn't actually take it. And Shmuel says, no, it's a gift. Again, the same reasoning, right? That of course someone knows they can't do Kedushin with his sister. And he gave it to her as a gift. The name So then the question is again, same as Rav. So just say, I'm giving you a gift. Right? He said maybe it would embarrass her. So he gives it to her under the premise of Kedusha. Now, I read this and think like, that's kind of yucky that he would give it to her under the premise of Kedusha, but okay. <laughs> so the Gemara then brings a very interesting mission here. Mati Ravina. So Ravina sort of challenges all of this. If somebody separates from his, from his, separates challah from flour, right? In other words, they take the raw ingredients and they say, this is going to be the challah. Challah is the portion that you have to separate out to the coin of your, do- of your dough, but it went to the coin. But this is where somebody, before they made the dough, they said, I'll just separate out the flour, right? Ain't no challah. Then it's not considered as if they separated challah. The gez will be out of coin and it's considered stolen, if it remains in the ha- hands of the coin to who it was given to. In other words, the coin doesn't have the right to keep the flower, right? Even if he keeps it to him. But my gazelle be out of coin. Now, going back using Shmuel and Rub's opinions, right? According to Shmuel, what, why should the separated flower be considered stolen, right? A person knows that chala can't be separated from flower. And just say that he gave it to him as a gift. Um, so in other words, why couldn't we sort of say the same thing? Why couldn't we use Shmuel's principle here? So the Gemara is going to sort of defend Shmuel here and say the Mishnah does consider it a gift, but the coin has to return it for a different reason. Shani Hatam, right? Shmuel would say this case of the flower is different. Right? Because a, a, a something, a chorva, right? Literally like a calamity could come from this. Because there may be a time where the coin is less than five quarters of a cob of flour in his possession. Okay, and now this is where we're going to get into like, there's a lot of math here. The dough has to have five quarter cobs of flour in order to have challah. If the dough has less than that, then there's no reason to separate challah. So here what we're saying is, is that if the coin is less than five quarters of a cob of flour in his possession, the high, right? And this flour that someone gave him is challah, the coin then 
puts together with the other flour that he has. And now he does get to the amount of flour that he needs in order to separate challah. Because sabr needs kana isato lemichla b'tivla. But he won't separate challah and then he'll come to eat it in its tebel state. Because, so because of that, there's another, the coin, you know, so the coin was given the flour under the pretense of it being challah. He has to return it as flour and he can't ever accept it as a gift because we're worried he might accidentally combine it with other flour and then not know that he, that, you know, challah wasn't taken from that mixture and needed to be taken. So they're going to challenge this, right? So they challenge this by saying, but everyone knows that doesn't count as challah. So in other words, if everybody knows something, that something bad can't happen, right? So they said the coin knows it, but he doesn't know it. Of course, he knows that you can't separate challah from flour. But he doesn't know the sever tamayu, right? But he but he thinks, what's the reason that you can't separate the challah? Mishum tirchad the kohen because it causes a problem for the kohen, who then is going to have to make who you know is going to have to take this flour and make it into dough. The tirchad the kohen achlite, but he right he doesn't care. He's willing to forget about this and say he doesn't care about the coin's trouble and he'll get his call in the form of flour. And so therefore he thinks that when he gets that the flour he gets does have the status of challah, he doesn't need to take it. In other words, he doesn't understand why he couldn't be given. So Gamar is going to go on and continue to sort of, uh, to question this um, and, and really goes into it for a long time. He's going to go again into Truma Um but part of the premise of what's being discussed here is, is that when somebody does something in the realm of standard halakha, right? You try to do kedushin with your sister. You, uh, you take flour for challah, even though you know you can't, right? What do we do in those scenarios? Like, we make about what people are thinking because it's such an obvious, this is something that's like so common knowledge with everybody that obviously they had to be thinking something else. Um, and I think that's, in, you know, an interesting way uh, to look at, you know, certain areas of halakha, that there are some things that are just so well to everybody that we just have to have the assumption that if somebody did the opposite or did or, or, or made an error, it can't be what they meant. There had to have been an ulterior motive. It was meant to be a gift. You know, the, the Kohen, like, understood that they, you know, of course that doesn't count as challah. And I, I just found those types of categories to be interesting. I don't think it's something that we've really seen yet. I think you make a really interesting point that the the given of it, right? And I think that that's part of what I was thinking about as, as you've been speaking is about challah and the fact that we, on the podcast, have very rarely talked about challah at all. In part because it's one of those mitzvot It's one of those things that not nowadays. I'm sorry. It's in it's in um, Zrayim, right? Masachet Chala is in Zrayim, and the issue of to what extent do we take Chala is very um, practice dependent, right? So if you bake Chala in large quantities, you'll take Chala, and if you don't, you might never encounter the practice of this mitzvah. Meaning, presumably, the bread you eat that comes from a kosher bakery or has kosher, kosher certification will have had challah taken. But the idea that you have to make sure that it was done, it was such a given. And so we don't, and yet we, nowadays, I think many people don't think about it, at least unless you're actually baking. So that's kind of like a, I don't know, half-baked idea. But I, I think the issue of, you know, to what extent 
you know, because we've been mentioning this question of to what extent did Kedusha Katana take place? To what extent did betrothal in these under, you know, strange circumstances take place? To what extent was Chala even called into... I think it fits into this discussion more than I thought it was when I first went through the DAF. Uh, yeah, it's a great, there's a lot of good discussion on this stuff. I would totally agree with you. It's a complicated stuff, but there's underneath, uh, we see some really interesting thinking, how to analyze that Mishnah. What do we do about cases that are so out of the right? Like, this is almost the opposite of like boundary pushing, right? These are cases that are so out of the realm. How do we actually process them? Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank is Yes. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this staff on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.